Thanks, Mike. Good morning. My name's Ron Deal, and uh, ah, boy, what an honor to be with you. I've been here this weekend, uh, Friday, Saturday. We had a step family, step family conference for couples, and uh, had a really great time and a great crowd, and had people drive in from many hours away to be a part of that. And uh, this afternoon, we're going to spend some time talking about sexuality in marriage and God's plan and design, and uh, I hope you come bold, hope you come ready to listen this afternoon. My wife tells me I'm entirely too comfortable talking about sex in front of people. So consider that your warning, all right? We're going to have a good, honest conversation. I believe sex is God's territory. He made it. Can I get an amen? amen. So we should take it back from the culture. This morning, we're going to spend some time talking about the context of marriage, a healthy marriage relationship in which healthy sexuality can grow. So this morning's focus is really going to be on the husband-wife relationship. By the way, if you're single... Glad you're here. This is stuff you need to learn, stuff you need to be aware of, because you might be interested, you might be in the market, (laughs) and someday find yourself with a husband or wife. Maybe you're not at this point in time, that's okay. Still having a good sense of husband-wife relationships through God's eyes tells you something about God's relationship with you as one of his children, Christ and the church. We'll come back to that a little bit later. Kids say interesting things about love, don't they? One seven-year-old, when asked, uh, how do you know when somebody's in love? (laughs) She said, well, it's when he puts on cologne and she puts on perfume and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) That is how it starts, let me tell you. I mean, if if you've never dated, that is the way it starts. One 12-year-old walked up to his youth minister one day and said, hey, do you know what love is? And the youth minister was a little curious at this point from a 12-year-old. And he goes, all right, I give. What's love? And he said, well, this is how you know you're in love. Have you ever felt a feeling like a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling like a feeling you've never felt before? That's how you know you're in love. Hmm. 12-year-old went on to say, what's a kiss? Youth minister was really interested at this point. All right, I give. What's a kiss? Well, it's a mouthful of nothing, he said. (laughs) But it tastes sweet like heaven. And it sounds like a cow pulling her foot out of the mud. That's true. It does. That's pretty good stuff. Well, a feeling you feel when you feel a feeling like a feeling you've never felt before. Is this a good definition of love? I submit to you this morning that no, it is not. That's a very poor definition of love. That's just the warm fuzzies. Now you feel feelings. Absolutely. Absolutely. You feel those things. But that doesn't define whether it's love or not. Love is a series of verbs, according to 1 Corinthians 13. There's some stuff to it. There's some substance to it. Just the warm fuzzies, that comes, that goes. It comes back, it goes away again. That is not a good definition of love. I really prefer Hallmark's definition of love. I'm sorry, I should qualify that. They didn't really have a definition of love. They had an ad campaign, but it was a really good ad campaign because they don't even use it anymore and you still remember it. When you care enough to Send the very best. See, they haven't used that in a decade. See how good that ad campaign was? You still remember that. Anybody over the age of 30-something, you remember that, right? Well, let's take out the word send and put in the word give. When you care enough to give the very best to another person. Ha, I think that's a pretty good working definition of what love is and what love does. When you care enough to give the very best to someone else. The best of what? Hallmark cards? Well, sure, but no, you. 
When you care enough about somebody else to give the best of you to someone, I think we have a pretty good working definition of what love is and does. Well, as relationships go, there are times and seasons in our relationships when we have the natural willingness to give the best of ourselves. It's like we don't even think about it. We're just on automatic, no calculation of how much it's going to cost us. We just do it. When do you think that is in relationships? Yeah, anybody who's been there done that, you know, it's dating, right? That's the, the big lie, right? When you're trying to win the other person's heart, and so you're willing to do whatever it takes to show them that you care enough about them that much that they would want to hang around you. You have the natural willingness to give the best of yourself. And the interesting thing is, as I get to travel around the country, I've been listening to stories, and I've been collecting stories. People do the most outlandish things when they're dating and they have the willingness to give the best i've heard of women for example who will get up at 4 a.m and sit in a deer stand with this guy just because she's trying to win his heart (laughs) and prove to him she you know she'll watch football well she likes football but she'll watch the pregame show with him because she's trying to win his heart she'll go fishing with him even though she thinks fishing's a jerk on one end of the line waiting for a jerk on the other end of the line And I've heard of men who will do the weirdest things, like open car doors. Have you ever heard of this? It's really amazing. I I know it sounds a little bizarre. He'll buy a Hallmark card for her, and he'll actually write something in it, not just rely on what they came up with. (laughs) Men do these crazy things when they're trying to win the other person. He'll buy flowers, you know, and he'll be thoughtful, and he'll cook her dinner. Okay, reheat something in the microwave. But it's what he can do. He'll come up with something. I've even heard of one guy gave up the remote control. This is before marriage, we all understand. Because things are going to change, right, once marriage comes along, because you've caught her, right? You've caught your limit. There's a law against. You can't hunt her anymore. There's a law against that sort of thing, you know? You have to go on and do other things with your life. And so uh, someone said once, along comes love, and then comes romance, and then comes the number one destroyer of love and romance, marriage. Now, I don't know if that's really true or not, but but there is a little bit of a truth in there somewhere in the sense that we get familiar with one another. And once we've won their heart, we kind of feel like we don't have to do that anymore. Familiarity kind of sets in and it begins to steal the initiative that we had. It steals that natural willingness to give the best of ourselves in the loving service of the other person. And it just kind of begins to go away. Now, for couples in remarried and stepfamily situations, there's another dynamic at play. That familiarity sets in as well. But then there's all that complexity that goes on in their home around them with children and perhaps ex-spouses if there's something there or the, the loss of a, of a deceased spouse or children moving back and forth between homes, parenting and step all that kind of complexity begins to crowd out the couple's initiative with one another. But the end result is the same. You see, they fell in love, giving the best of themselves with one another, and they wake up one day and they discover that they're in the drift. And what started out as a movement toward one another with great intentionality ends up to be just kind of life and stuff takes over And they wake up and they're not connected. And they never meant to get there. It just sort of happens. Not everybody, but maybe you can relate to that on some level. And so the question becomes, how do we recover that which we started with so naturally, that willingness to give the best of ourselves? You see, what I'm saying to you this morning is, as we get older, I don't know if you've noticed, we get a little more sedentary in life. You know, I don't know about you, but that's true for me. I was far more active, did far more athletics, and did more active things with my time and energy on the weekends, and 
I just don't do that as much. And we kind of maybe develop some love handles along the way as we get older. We get relationally sedentary in the very same way that we get physically sedentary. We get sedentary in our relationships and we lose our handle on how to love. But this marriage thing really matters, right? I mean, we really need to try to get it right. Why do we need to get it right? Because uh, marriage is the foundation of the home. Well, yes, that's true. Because marriage is the foundation for society. That, that's also true. Because marriage is the bedrock for parenting. Parenting kind of flows out of the marriage. Relate. Well, that's true as well. I mean, it impacts parenting, which impacts children and the next generation and how we raise them to know the Lord. Because this marriage thing impacts our emotional well-being. Yes, all of those things are true. But even more true is the fact that marriage, number one, is a reflection of God and his relationship with his body, the church. And if we're reflecting to the world the drift, then they may think that God has moved away from us. I mean, what, is that, what comment does that make on his relationship? We're supposed to be a reflection of that. So that's number one. And number two, this marriage thing is important because it's where God grows us up. I mean, N.T. Wright said, I shared with the group this past weekend, N.T. Wright says, love is the language they speak in heaven. It's the music to the dance of heaven. And you're moving there. So you might want to learn how to speak the language. Right? And, and God has given us this incredible ability right here, right now, as his kingdom has already come into the world through us, through Christ and the church, to begin to speak the language of heaven, to learn it right here, right now. And we just carry all of that with us when perfection comes and we enter the kingdom of God with Christ someday, whenever that is in a very thorough complete way he makes us complete but even now we can be learning that language of love it's how god grows us up into the image of christ marriage is one of those places where we learn how to be more like christ so we really need to get this thing figured out so this morning we're going to take a fresh look at an old passage you've probably heard a lot people preach about ephesians chapter 5 go ahead open your bible if you would Let's look at Ephesians chapter 5. When I say we're going to take a fresh look, um, I'd like to just try to connect some dots for you, perhaps in a way that you've not heard before. It's a great text. There's so much in it. We don't have time to cover everything. But I do want to just try to perhaps show you the, the overall relationship that God's really trying to offer us. In an Ephesians 5 Christian marriage. There's a lot of of layers to Ephesians 5. And sometimes we get caught up in one of those layers and we kind of miss the point. For example, I think Paul's going to answer one question by answering another question. One of the questions that was going on in Paul's day that goes on in our day is how do you do the business of marriage? I mean, how do you actually do life, get along with one another and, and work as a team? And in Paul's day, that was a question they were asking as well. But the way he's going to answer that question is by answering another question. And this is the bigger question. How do we love? What does love look like from men toward their wives, from women towards their husbands? And in answering that question, he's going to help us understand the business of marriage. And when I say the business of marriage, here's what I mean. It's a question in our day as well. A a recent study of over 21,000 couples found that the number one issue in couple relationships had to do with leadership and power and decision-making in the marriage. That was the number one thing. 93% of happy and unhappy couples alike, 93% of happy and unhappy couples alike either disagreed about how they shared leadership and power or they felt unequal in the relationship. They're trying to understand the business 
of working together in marriage? Paul's going to answer that question by answering the how do you love question. Verse 21. He's going to start off by talking about... uh, He's kind of just finished a section where he's been talking about the church and how we get along and how we work with one another. And submission is a part of that in deferring to one another as we get along as the body of Christ. He's going to carry that theme right into the next section where he talks about husbands and wives. And then he's going to talk about children and parents in in chapter 6. And then he's going to talk about masters and slaves or employers and employees later on in chapter 6. We're just going to look at the section that has to do with marriage. And here's what you need to know about the Greco-Roman world there. They were authority-based, all right? People asserted their way. And Paul's starting this whole section off, whether he's talking about the church or husbands and wives, where he's talking about children and parents, he's talking about we get along. We set ourselves aside for the sake of getting along and cooperating with one another. Don't be like the culture around you, just asserting your way to get your way. No, 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 that's not the way God's people handle themselves. So there's this one another theme that comes out in this passage. Now, in verse 22, he's going to start off by taking a good hard look at wives and their relationship with husbands. Now, if you're familiar with this passage, you know that he's going to talk about this submission thing, right? And anytime I bring that up, I know there's always somebody in the audience who goes, oh, great, he's going to talk about submission. And let me just do something this morning. Let's just pause on that section. Let's talk to the men first, and then we'll come back to that, all right? Let's see if we can get the other side figured out, and then we'll come back to this. So we're going to jump ahead to verse 25. Read with me. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Pause. Any man who's married, who's sitting in the room right now, should join me and be incredibly intimidated right here, right now. Are you kidding me? This is what I am called to do in my relationship with my wife, Nan. I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up. I know what that cost, my Lord. Are you kidding me? That's my standard? I'm not sure I want to read anymore. If you really read that and really take it in and hear it, you just got intimidated. You just thought, oh my word, how do I do that? How in the world am I going to accomplish that? Exactly. But there's grace. Let's keep reading. What did he do for us? To make her holy. Now, by the way, every time it says her, it's talking about the church. That's you and me. All right. So put it in the uh, personal, make it, make it personal for you, to make us holy, cleansing us by the washer, washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, there he goes again, there he's drawing that in. In the same way, guys, here's your standard. Husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body, but he feeds and he cares for it. I've often thought if we love our wives the way we feed our bodies, our wives ought to be at least pleasantly plump. <laughs> you know what I mean? I don't know about you, but I, I can eat pretty good, right? 
If that's the way I treat myself, then that ought to be the way I treat her. Just as Christ does the church. He's back to that analogy again. For we are all members of the body. And for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. And the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. That last section we're going to come back to tonight when we talk about sexuality. So let's just kind of capture here. What is Paul saying that it means to be the head of the wife? Well, apparently we're to love our wives the way Christ loves us, the church. And how did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. In other words, we could say he gave the best of himself in the loving service of another. To make her what? To make us what? Holy, cleansed, radiant, without stain, without blemish, holy and blameless in the same way husbands. In other words, what Jesus did for the church was make the church more than it could ever be without him. You get that? What Jesus did for the church is make us to be more than we could ever be without him. Can we do holiness on our own? No, we couldn't get there. Can we get blemish without a blemish on our own? No, not even close. Can we do that on our own? It's all those things that we could never accomplish for ourselves. He did because of how he loved us. That, guys, is your standard for how you're supposed to love your wife. Your wife should be more because of your presence in her life, never less. Jesus used his power to empower other people. When did Jesus ever be uh, the boss? When did he ever use his power to lord it over others and make them less? I was doing a counseling session one time. This couple came in. I'll never forget it. We were talking about other things. But they had just been to church. It was like a Monday morning. And uh, they they came in and they said, okay, we got to ask a question before we jump in. Um, Yesterday, our preacher was teaching out of Ephesians 5. And he said that that whole submission thing meant that like if a husband gets hungry in the middle of the night, his wife has no choice but to get up and make him a sandwich. And they looked at me with just, you know, they were very serious. Is that what Paul's talking about? And I said, well, let me answer that question with another question. If the standard for how husbands are to love their wives is as Christ gave himself, gave the best of himself up for the church and it made the church more than she could ever be without him. When was it that Jesus insisted that his disciples make him a PB&J? Was that before or after he washed their feet? Was that before or after the God of the universe gave up his position, his power, his prominence and everything he had to become a little baby and walk on a dusty road and work? Try to and, 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 and walk around with people and teach and talk and love on them only to have them reject him and crucify him. When was it that Jesus actually used his power to make other people serve him? Never. Oh, he used his power all right, but it was to make other people more than they could be all by themselves. He, he got angry all right, but that's when the people were mistreating the temple and not responding to God the way they needed to be or when they were mistreating the downcast. He was always using his power to empower other people. And that's the standard that we have as husbands about loving our wives. Now, let me just pause for a second here. You've got to understand the Greco-Roman world, as I said a minute ago. Everybody was always using their authority for their, for their well-being, 
for their gain. They were always trying to use their position and maintain their position. The radical thing in Ephesians chapter 5 is not what God says to women. It's not what Paul says to women. And through our lens, culturally, we kind of go, oh, yeah, submission, and they're saying women can't, da 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 you got to understand this in light of the context in which it was given. In the Greco-Roman world, the radical thing in this passage is what we just read. It's what Paul says to men. In the Greco-Roman world, men had so much power in marriage that they could, you ready for this? Walk out on the front step and say, you know what? My wife burned breakfast. I'm divorcing her. And that was it. That was done. There's no courts. There's no somebody representing her point of view. They don't take it to the judge and they kind of have this process where everybody plays their side. No, 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 no. Men had ultimate power to even divorce for no reason whatsoever other than the fact they just decided they didn't want her anymore. In that context, Paul says, don't you dare treat her like that. Don't you dare treat her like she's some possession that you can toss away. You feed her. You care for her. You take care of her. You give the best of yourself and the loving service of her. She should be more because of you, not less. That's the radical thing in Ephesians chapter 5. Now, guys, I got good news for you. If you do this, I mean, I'm not a prophet. I can't. I can't guarantee you this, but I think two things might happen. Number one, she's going to outgive you. If you try to give this like, give yourself to her like this, she is going to give back to you and you, she's going to outdo you. <laughs> I don't know what it is. Women are just natural servants and givers. And as good as we can be, I think they can be even better at it. She's going to give right back. And the second thing is, she's going to trust your heart so much, she'll follow you to the ends of the earth. Because she sees in you someone who cares so much and so deeply for her that how you live your life and the decisions you make and how you include her and how you respect her and honor her and bring her into conversation and make decisions with her input. And it's all about looking out for her and the family and the kids and the direction and making sure that God is on his throne in your home. She trusts that in you. She'll follow you anywhere. Which is a nice setup. For verse 22, wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now read that through the lens of submit to the man who is taking care of you. Submit to the man who is looking after you, who is making sure that you are experiencing God's blessings because of his love. He's not using you for selfish ambition or gain or authority or to push other people around. He's using you. He's going to love you the way Christ loves the church. Could you submit to that? It might not be a problem. Now, as church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Submission in Paul's day was often used in a military reference. And it literally meant, watch this, it literally meant two equal people of rank coming into this room together. So you got a general and a general and they walk in the room and they're the same rank. If there's anything embedded in this idea of wives submitting to their husbands, it's that you have equal value with your husband. You have equal rank. You have equal worth in God's eyes. That creates a problem. You got to figure out how we're going to do business, the business of marriage. We got two generals of equal rank. How are we going to do this thing? We kind of need a system of how they're going to work together. So submission was one general voluntarily saying, you know what? I'm with you. 
I'm not less than you. I'm not uh, of lesser value than you. In fact, we're the same. Therefore, for us to work together, I'm going to cooperate. I'm going to volunteer. Nobody's beaten down. Nobody's made to be less. Somebody chooses to love in that sense. And that's the metaphor that Paul is calling women to do. Now, just like men have a standard of how to do that as Christ loved the church, ladies, I think Christ is an example to you of what submission looks like. If you flipped a couple page over in your Bible to Philippians chapter 2, a different passage, but listen to what Paul is saying in verse 6. He's talking about where verse 5, your attitude should be the same as Christ Jesus. Now look at that. Look up here for a minute. Same as Christ, who being in the very nature God. Right? He has equal value, equal worth. He is, in fact, God. Did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but here it is but he made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above all names. Now look at this. Our world is so busy trying to figure out who's the boss, right? Who's the boss? Who's going to make the PB&J in the middle of the night? So is it him? Is it her? Is it him? Is it her? And that just creates a competition for power. But in God's economy, it's him saying, I'm serving you and making sure you're going to be more. And she's going to go, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm working with you and cooperating. And he's going, I'm looking out for you, babe. And she's going, you know what? I'll go with you anywhere in the world. And all of a sudden, we have a competition, all right. But it's not a competition for who's the boss. It's a competition of kindness. It's a competition of kindness. Two people willing to give the best of themselves in the loving service of the other. Now, I don't know about you, but a competition of kindness is kind of attractive. I could go for that. Actually sounds fun. Actually sounds safe. Actually sounds like a harbor where you can just go and rest. So how do we love? By denying ourselves, by putting our selfishness aside, by putting on a spirit of kindness and giving the best of ourselves in the loving service of the other, just like Christ did for us. That's a sacrificial, Christ-honoring marriage. How do we do that? Everyday living. Quick little application story. Here's the point. As long as it's under the banner of God's will, let the other person decide what's loving for them. And do your best. Give yourself to that. I learned this one the hard way, like most things in our marriage. We just celebrated 30 years, and every minute I'm learning something new. You know what I mean? But this one I learned early on. See, even before when we were dating, I started this little habit of bringing home a rose to my wife. I wasn't very rich. I couldn't afford a bunch. So I would go to the store on my way home from work or school or whatever you, and buy one long-stemmed red rose, and I would take it to her. And it was just my way of trying to say, I love you, and I'm thinking of you. One day, uh, we were a few years into marriage, and I, and I thought to myself on the way home from work, oh, man, I haven't done that rose thing in a while. I really need to do that again. So ran by the flower shop on the way home, you know, starting to get energized around, you know, surprising her when I get home. So I walk into the flower shop, and I'm going, okay, I'm doing the red thing for a long time. She might be getting tired of that. Let's, let's 
pick it up a notch, Ron. Um, let's just do a different color. Keep it in the rose category. That's definitely her favorite. All right. Can I have one long-stemmed yellow rose? So I got it wrapped, you know, put it in the car, driving home, scheming how I'm going to surprise her, right? Drive up in the driveway, garage opens. I'm hoping she's in the kitchen. Sure enough, she was. So I walk in, got the rose behind my back, kind of tap her on the shoulder, spin her around and go, hey, babe, just want you to know that I love you and I'm thinking about you. Pause. Now, normally what happens at that point is I get this big, juicy kiss, you know, and this warm hug, and you are my manly stud. How lucky am I to have you in my life? And I love that moment, right? That's a really great moment for me. But on this occasion, I didn't get that. Babe, I just want to let you know I was thinking about you today, and this time I got this. Oh, well, thank you. Took the rose, went back to... Hello? I mean, I was really disappointed. So I did the only thing that made sense to me at that point in time. I pouted for three days. <laughs> because we all know, they need to know that they've hurt us, right? And you can't actually say it out loud because that would be owning my hurt and that would be wrong. So I have to be passive aggressive and, and, and w- withdraw and, you know, not look at her and do little things that convey the message and bring her closer to me And then she didn't. (laughs) So after three days, I got tired of waiting. So I went to her and said, all right, what's the deal with the rose? And she was like, oh, really? It's no big deal. And I go, oh, yes, it is. (laughs) What's the deal with the rose? And she said, I don't know, Ron. It's just somewhere back in junior high, somebody told me red means love and yellow means friendship. Nobody told me that in junior high. (laughs) And we went to the same junior high for crying out loud. So you know what I was thinking at that point in time? Kind of went something like, oh, come on. Are you kidding me? Do you have any idea how many women in the world were saying a husband like me was thoughtful and considerate, would take time and spend a little money to go buy some flowers and surprise you, and now you're reacting that way because it's yellow? Thank God I didn't say that out loud. But that is what I was thinking. You see, because I hadn't learned this principle that as long as it's under the banner of God's will, love her her way. See, I wanted to love her my way. I want to love her with the love I'm willing to give, and I want her to be happy with that. Now, folks, I can tell you, I've spent an awful lot of time in marriage and family ministry and doing marriage counseling, and there's an awful lot of us running around the world, and that's exactly how we live. We had the willingness to give the best of ourselves at one point in time, but somewhere along the road, we decided that our love should be enough. And I get to decide how much I give and how I give, and you should just be okay with that. That's not loving with the best of me. See, sacrificial marriage means getting up in the middle of the night with the kids again, even though it's not your turn. Oh, you've been keeping score. (laughs) But it's not your turn, but you do it anyway. That's what sacrificial marriage means. And sacrificial marriage means learning how to communicate in the midst of conflict. When you're like me, you're a good conflict avoider. You're a natural avoider. You don't want to go into that space. And so when conflict erupts, you just kind of find a way around it. You find a way to say, yeah, okay, it's not a big deal. Or you get passive aggressive and you pout for three days. Or you do all kinds of interesting things, none of which are loving. 
none of which actually contribute to the relationship and help you move through the problem. And so sacrificial marriage for you and me means you've got to learn how to communicate and stay engaged in a positive, helpful way in the midst of conflict. And you didn't know when you got married you were going to have to learn that one. Nobody told you that. That's God's little joke on us. We say, I promise till death do his part to love, honor, and cherish, but we had no clue what that meant. That's God's little joke. We take our vows at the beginning of marriage, and then life teaches us what we committed ourselves to. That kind of stinks, actually, you know, because we just thought it was going to be the warm fuzzies when you feel a feeling like a feeling you never felt before. And I didn't know I was going to have to learn to give up that part of me. Sacrificial marriage means sometimes doing something kind for the other person when it's not Mother's Day or Father's Day or a birthday or an anniversary or Valentine's Day, but just because. It means reading a book about relationships or going to a small group at church or attending a class or a workshop about relationships. When you hate that stuff, you'd rather be on the golf course, but you go because that's what sacrificial marriage means for you. Sacrificial marriage means humbly accepting feedback from your mate when you've hurt them. And they're trying to tell you this. And it's really hard to hear it. And your pride doesn't want to admit that you messed up. But sacrificial marriage means you swallow hard and you listen. Sacrificial marriage means you respect the differences and the preferences of the other person. Again, as long as it's under the banner of God's will, you're okay with it and you go along with it. I learned this one the hard way too. We hopped in the car one day. My car was in the shop, so she was going to drive me to work and drop me off and then go on her way. And she's driving and we get two blocks down the road and I, I, I kind of tell by her body language, she's a little nervous about something and I'm, I don't know what it is. So, hey, what's on your mind? I could just kind of read it, you know? And she goes, oh, nothing. I know what that means. No, no, no. What's on your mind? Well, oh, she was anxious. And she came out with it. She told me. Because she knew what was about to happen. I was in the passenger seat, but I was going to drive. Why are you in this lane? You know, this time of day, it's a whole lot faster if you go left here up at the light. Please get around this guy. He's not going the same place we are. We need to turn this way. Would you? What are you doing? She knew I was going to drive. Pause. Uh, see, ladies, what she didn't understand is when you're going from point A to point B, what all men in this room understand is you're trying to get there as fast as you can. You're trying to beat your time from last week and race the guy next to you, even though he's not going the same place you are, but that doesn't really matter. So I had to help her with this. No, no. See, that's about me, not about her. I didn't know. Is she more or less in that moment? I think she's less. Sacrificial marriage means letting go of the parts of you that have a great need when it's really not a need. It's learning how to... Folks, listen. Here's my metaphor for marriage. You remember the farmer in Mark chapter 5, the guy with the demon-possessed pigs? Do you remember this story? Okay, I'm not sure Mike's ever taught it that way, but you'll remember the story as soon as I get there, right? Because we just look at it from Farmer Brown's point of view. See, Farmer Brown's out one day, he's got a mess of pigs, and they're just kind of lounging in the sun, basking. I don't know what it is they're doing, but he's having a good day. He's a rich man. But on the neighboring hillside is Jesus talking to a guy who has a legion of demons in him. Now, you remember the story in Mark chapter 5? What does Jesus do to the legion of demons? Cast them out of the man into Farmer Brown's pigs! Read the story. Never does Jesus turn to Farmer Brown. Excuse me, Farmer Brown, can I borrow your pigs? Never. He just takes it. Sometimes that's what Jesus does. This is marriage, folks. Sometimes Jesus takes from me what I thought was mine and I could hold on to, and he says, you need to sacrifice that for the sake of your wife. 
Let it go. There's a greater purpose here. I mean, I feel sorry for Farmer Brown. His life changed. In the next minute, he's got 2,000 pigs filled with demons running down the hillside, drowning themselves in the lake. He started the day as a rich man. He ends the day with 2,000 dead, demon-possessed pigs bobbing up and down in the water. If he can't find a market for deviled ham, he is completely broke. Some of you are going to get that on the way home. This is marriage. I didn't know I was going to have to give that up. And when two people love sacrificially, giving the best of themselves in the service of the other, who are they being like? Christ. And who do they honor? Christ. And who do they move toward as individuals and as a couple? Christ. And who does their marriage reflect to the world? Christ in the church. Let me leave you with this. A family therapist um, went to a 50th wedding anniversary. Went in and, um, you know, that's always kind of a big deal. It's a lot of fun. My, My mom died last fall and mom and dad were two weeks shy of 62 years of marriage. I mean, that's a big deal these days, you know? So this guy went to this 50th wedding anniversary, and he just kind of waited till he had an opportunity, and he grabbed the wife, and he pulled her off to the side, and he goes, all right, what's your secret? Tell me how'd you do it. And she said, well, you got to understand, I've been married to five different men. And he went, how does the math work on that? You mean before this guy? She goes, oh, no, no, no. It just seemed like I was married to five different men. She, he, she said, um, when I married him, he was a lively, handsome, trim young man with idealistic dreams. And then he changed into a man focused intensely on work and making a living. You see, that there was a part of him that, that shifted, that moved away from pursuing her into pursuing other things. They drifted a little bit. He was like a different man. I did not love the new man at first, but I learned how to love him. Just when it seemed I'd gotten used to the new one, he changed again. He went through what's called today a midlife crisis. Only we didn't know about that in those days. He became disinterested in work, dissatisfied and disillusioned about being the breadwinner and all that. And I had to learn how to love him all over again in that stage. You think she had any unexpected sacrifices? Sounds like a lot. Then he came out of that and he settled into his older years. And now he has a wisdom and a depth that I really appreciate. But look over there. And she kind of pointed to where her husband was. She says, that doesn't look like the man I married. This one has saggy skin and a bit of a pot belly. But I've learned how to love that man in the saggy body too. If you've been married a while, don't look now. But the person you're sitting with might not look like, don't look now. It might not look like the person you married. It might have saggy skin, a pot belly, a few love handles. But that doesn't mean we have to lose our handle on how to love. Your heart, recapture the willingness to give the best of yourselves in the loving service of the other. And when you get two people doing that, you've got a competition of kindness, and that's fun. 
And that's what God's dream is for you. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you so much for your great patience with us, for your love for us, for the sacrifice that Christ has made on behalf of us. The sacrifice that teaches us how to submit, how to give, how to love with our whole selves, giving the best of ourselves. We thank you that you have done that for us and that you are our example. God, give us the courage today to love like that. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.